Welcome to the Human Odyssey, the podcast about human-centered design. The way humans learn, behave, and perform is a science, and having a better understanding of this can help improve your business, your work, and your life. This program is presented by Sophic Synergistics, the experts in human-centered design. So, let's get started on today's Human Odyssey. Welcome to the Human Odyssey podcast. I am Rachel, and I'm going to be your moderator for this episode about the wonderful world of medical devices and how you can get uh, the perfect design. And I'm here with uh, Jen. Hey, good to be here. Excited to talk about the human component of human-centered design and medical device. Also, Cynthia is here. Hey, Rachel. We're looking forward to this topic. It's It's a pretty prevalent one these days. And finally, Raquel. Hey, everyone. Excited to be here and speak about medical devices and just my experience with them and what I know. So, you know, I think, you know, a a good place to start for everybody since, you know, the whole world isn't attuned to human-centered design and and what that means in terms of medical devices. You know, we set up, we, we show up for care. We don't really understand what what goes into, you know, getting the practitioners and the devices that we need to support our care uh, require. And so I think that's where we should probably start this story. And so human-centered design is a, is a large part of that story in terms of how products and services get to market to help support people when they get sick, injured, or some combination of the two. And the FDA is also a large part of this in terms of regulating the businesses or companies that come to the table with innovative solutions to make sure that we cause no harm, right? So that's a pretty prevalent term in the medical care industry. And so human-centered design's focus is just that, do no harm, but cause, you know, be, create a situation of the most good, not only from uh, reducing the risk to people and providers, but also optimizing outcomes for people um, in terms of their interactions with healthcare. And again, that that runs the gamut from, you know, how, how your experience goes with, with providers and how, how delivery of care goes, whether we're talking about a clinic or a hospital setting or at home. And so that's sort of the, the 50,000 foot level of, of human centered design in the health space. And um, I, I think Jen probably has some other words to add there from, from the applied health perspective. Yeah. Thanks. You know, the, as you mentioned, it's more and more prevalent. So the idea of using technology and the remote application of technology is is expanding exponentially. One, because the capabilities have been definitely growing for a while and the familiarity with them, but the pandemic drove, you know, a, a very acute need um, to get medical care out into the hands of the patients to deliver data back to the providers rather than seeing someone in person. So that was the next step function change in how people perceived, you know, the value of, of devices and software to get information about their health and then get it into the hands of providers so that they could be diagnosed or provided the right treatment. Um, and, you know, there's a lot wrapped up in there because, you know, when you talk about human-centered design, I think 
you know, people zero in on the patient. You know, what are you measuring? How are you measuring it? What's the evidence base so you can interpret the data? But there's many other humans involved in the the full life cycle of a device or software um, that's doing that. You got to consider, you know, technicians that might be involved or home health care providers, the physicians themselves, and other people who manage data um, who are in the mix that, that might be you know, um, driving the types of information that move between the patient and the provider, and they're going to have an impact or the software is going to have an impact on that. And then how do we, how do we get confidence, uh, in all of the components, the hardware, the software, and the people so that we, we achieve those better outcomes that you were mentioning. Cause that, that's really where that's the, so what, you know, if you're not doing any type of risk reduction, improvement of outcomes, um, accelerating access to care. The question is why, why, why are you doing this? You know, why do you matter? Um, and you know, there's a discovery road that has to give some latitude, but that's the research side. But when it goes into actually, when you're trying to move that research, uh, into clinical care and move through the regulatory pathways, you better be able to demonstrate that you, you have a solid rationale and you're going to be improving things either again, outcomes or access that are really going to matter. And I think that's an excellent point because that's where a lot of misperception too, when people think about the FDA and, you know, you have a company that's desperate to get new technologies to market, you know, there's, there's often a viewpoint that the regulatory process slows things down or hinders innovation because it's regulatory. But I think the, the major point that people miss, miss is that, the regulatory process is there to make sure you do all the right things so that you are successful once you get to market and that you don't hurt someone. And then you end up, you know, with a whole slew of other issues and potentially you are no longer a viable company. And so I I think sometimes we don't think about the the 360 degree view of product development. And once you get to market and in the goal of the regulatory process and making things, making sure things are safe, and effective for people because as Jim points out, you have a multitude of different types of users depending on what type of solution you're introducing and you've got to understand their environment and their approach to use soup to nuts to make sure you don't introduce new hazards um, that that you didn't intend to. Uh, there's also a thing in the regulatory process where it's like it, the regulatory process is not perfect. That's why you need more uh, HCD in the process because it still could hurt somebody even if it passes through FDA. Yeah, that's an excellent point. You know, I think it's also a misnomer that if you get FDA approval, you're automatically a success and that's not true either. Yeah, I I think there's some, you know, I agree. The regulatory pathway is designed to, to build rigor into the system and drive processes and checks and balances to give yourself yourself, either the developer and or the patient, like, you know, it has this seal that it's gone through this process and I should have some confidence that, you know, again, most of the time we realize like the the idea of zero harm is is not realistic, even if it's minuscule, you know, like it's inconsequential, but it still gets on the list. That's why those, I'm more aware of it, like with the drug development and even for anyone who watches TV and hears the commercials. (laughs) And they're going to give you the laundry list of all the bad, bad side effects. And, and you're like, well, why? You know, <laughs> I'm having a hard time understanding why anyone would take this. But so they have to say those things, but it's never balanced. Like you don't understand the, you know, the context, the ratio. But in the, the concept of the FDA process, and to your point, Rachel, it is not perfect. Um, 
and that, you know, we coming back again from, you know, my, my prior <laughs> career with aerospace, you know, there are different areas you have to work in, which are the known problems, right? But usually the problem you're trying to solve, the technical problems and challenges to get the measurements you're looking for, the interpretation of the measurements, those, those usually are really entrenched in history and evidence base. And there's a lot of meat there to work with to understand what you're doing. And then there's the, I don't, I, things I know I don't know. Those are the gaps, you know, and, and the regulatory process, I think really helps with the gaps. Um, it's going to make you ask those questions you didn't know to ask. It's going to talk about, you know, maybe demographics, you know, for populations you you didn't anticipate, or it's, it's really going to try to drive out the gaps and either you're going to get those gaps filled um, or your the transparency is there that says we're not designed to fill that gap. You know, that's when you really start parsing what exactly you are relevant to and you document that. The next area is the tough one, the I don't know what I don't know. And that's typically found in the phase four when you, you, you might have gotten FDA approval, but we could not or didn't know how to anticipate this gap or this use of it or this interpretation. So that's where there's room to learn. And what you're trying to do is minimize the, the ability to hurt someone while you're doing that phase four, that they may not get benefit. That's, that should be the worst case scenario, but they did not get harm. So it, it's tricky though, because especially with new technology, um, you know, where it's not a version of a prior application or, or technology, you're gonna, you're gonna hit the, I don't know what I don't know. Um, but, you know, there are definitely methodologies that help you work through it, whether it's, you know, and this is where any company should be interested in that kind of rigor, whether it's aligned with the regulatory or not, that makes you better, right? And safer and, and, and lower risk, but it is a financial investment. And that's when you start to get into the business side of things of, well, how much do we invest to find out the I don't know what I don't know before I'm made to? or before I'm forced to. So there's some balance there in the business case that, that that does is realistic. So we've been talking about the process of regulatory and the, so what exactly would be the process to get a device uh, signed off by the FDA, including this, uh, these HD, uh, HCD or human, uh, human centered design approach to medical devices to design? And, and so that that's a great question because I think it's not an obvious pathway in certain respects. I think, you know, what's well understood is the clinical regulatory part of the pathway. What's lesser understood, and forgive me for putting it that way, um, is the human-centered design pathway. It's 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 a parallel process and, and it it often isn't integrated well to understand which activity comes first to help you make that next step towards clinical trials. And a lot of folks separate the two as their independent tasks and almost a check the box activity when it comes to human centered design. And that is the, the exact wrong approach to take. It's the most expensive and the most um, risk filled um, posture you could take in terms of, you know, getting to the finish line and submitting to the FDA 
And, you know, what companies fail to realize is it, it starts on the design floor when you have a concept of something. And all too often we move right to prototyping and developing the widget because we have an idea. But what we've failed to understand is do we know that there's truly a problem out there that this idea solves in terms of, you know, providing um, a, a real solution to a problem set that we understand? And do we understand the end users? And a lot of times, these ideas or innovations come from people's experience in the healthcare system. You get a lot of doctors or medical professionals or people who are on the periphery that have been doing certain things and notice there's a need to solve a certain aspect of it, but they only understand it from their perspective. And what they fail to appreciate is they're not the end user. And so, you know, when we talk about the product design process, that's where it begins. Knowing that you're not the user if you're the creator, right? <laughs> And knowing that you've got to do some additional research outside of yourself to appreciate what the market space, you know, as Jen pointed out, the business aspect of this really is to continue on your path. And that also sets you up for all of those things from, you know, risk, you know, good, good risk due diligence and understanding where, where your opportunities really are. Yeah, I think a lot of. From my experience, a lot of the companies want to right, jump right into testing, right? They have that mid-level prototype and they want to say, no, we want to get it in front of users. What do they think about it? But really, there's a lot of way that design can be impacted and changed before even having users interact with it, just by getting to know them, doing observations, just having human-centered design experts break down the device. How would we, putting, getting out of that space that they know how to use the product that them as designers or engineers know how they're um, think that they are the users and making them realize you know what there are other ways that this could be used um, so I think just because like from what I've seen companies are really eager to start testing and they don't always realize the value of getting that foundational research in and how that can really set them up to where if we finally do testing we're doing it with like um, getting finding the, the the errors that we couldn't predict, um, so that by the time they get to summative, they're sure they're one hundred percent confident that their product is going to pass and be pass that final validation test. Yeah, and you know, Raquel brings up a lot of great points because you know we've we've also seen this time and time again. It's the most common condition. You know, they've already got a prototype or they've already done. You know, in their mind, you know conscientious testing, you know, because they've walked it across to their buddy down the hall and asked them if they liked it, right? That's that's not a test, but it's it's a pretty common response. And so we've spent the last, oh God, six or seven years doing a lot of um, support for incubator um, organizations, including the Texas Medical Center. And we've helped a lot of companies, but the very first question I asked them when they come see me, I was like, you know, what is the problem? You know, do, did, you, did you do your, your research to really understand the problem space? And nine times out of 10, they just look at you and they'll give me the answer back that, well, I was a practitioner and this was a problem for me. Well, that's your red flag, number one, that you've got to go back and <laughs> you're, you're missing some data points. And it may it may prove out that you're 100 percent right, but you've got to do that that step to make sure that you're even in the zone of a viable product. Forget everything else. Uh, another problem is you have to make observations to make sure your implementation is going to go smoothly because if if it causes one little bump in people's workflow, they'll just not use it. <laughs> Correct. And that's that's a that's a good point. You know, you have to make sure you understand the environment of use for 
a good um, data data set of practitioners to kind of understand what the 85% cases of how people operate, you know, within their, their different environments to appreciate the challenges that maybe you don't experience, but, but they do. And I think sometimes, you know, to both Raquel and Cynthia's points, you know, when people, they, they want to rush, right? They, they feel behind, but it's because time is money, especially for the small startups. Um, now we've, we've tried to, you know, educate and show data that says, if you don't invest in these things, kind of meter yourself. So you're doing the right things as fast as you can. But if you skip steps <laughs> or, or ignore them, you're going to pay the price later like literally financially pay the price, but mostly schedule hit if you've got the money to go back and do redesign. But it'll be a significant delay that was way worse than slowing down a little bit of the progress you would have made had you done the steps. And then the worst case scenario is getting through having a significant gap that you know results in harm. Um, and, and those are ones that there are case studies out there, like how did, you know, we need to learn from, like, how did this get there? How did this, how was this allowed even, even via the regulatory process? And that's when you see those process escapes. But, you know, the answer is the investment up front to do it well and make sure that you do all of those steps pays off later. It may feel like a delay, but you kind of got to, you got to calm yourself down. <laughs> you got to realize that that investment is very much worthwhile and will pay off. And ultimately, it'll, I think, has proved itself to get, be, make you more agile later and move faster. You know, it's a little bit of that, you know, rabbit in the hair or turtle in the hair, it's tortoise in the hair, kind of how fast you think you're moving fast, but you're going to run into significant delays. Yeah. And depending on which regulatory pathway, you know, fits you and how much um, interaction you have with the FDA throughout your process, you you doing a sound approach to human centered design actually starts ga- gaining their confidence and trust in you as a company and actually helps make that process easier and helps accelerate it in a sense because they now understand that you understand all of the right things to do and that they have a little bit more um, confidence in your ability to identify and buy down risk by incorporating it early and often. And again, you're constantly having a touch point with the FDA. It's not, it's not this, you know, ad, you know, confrontational type situation that a lot of people like to make it out to be the, the more open kimono you are with them, the easier it will be for you. And again, if you've got the guidance of, you know, outside professionals helping you, you know, even better, you know, that helps, helps gain confidence because when you don't do this and we've had certain circumstances where, you know, um, companies have been misguided for whatever reason, you know, got bad information, you know, we've, we've had to step in and have those hard conversations that you have to start, stop and, and go back to the starting line a little bit and reevaluate the design because you're not going to get through the regulatory process. And even if you decide to go through, you're going to, you're going to kill their confidence in your company and it's going to be, it's going to be a laborious process because they're going to go over everything you've done with a fine tooth comb because you, you didn't do your due diligence first. Another aspect is user training and retraining, which is one of the most expensive processes as well, because humans are expensive. <laughs> if you do it correctly the first time, it's going to be easier just to uh, have train your uh, your users because it, it's going to be more usable in general. And then if you have to, if there's something wrong and you have to redesign, you'll have to retrain them, which again is very expensive. 
Yeah, training is a kind of an ugly word in human factors. You know, we we always associate training with and equate it with a bad design, right? And you know, unfortunately, with complex systems, you have to have a little bit of training. But the ideal state is taking advantage of what they know how to do and integrating it so seamlessly into their understanding and workflow that that it's that it's seamless and the training is easy and all and almost intuitive in that nature, because what you don't want to do is have something that is so divergent from what they know and understand and how they operate, you know, to Rachel's earlier point, they'll just avoid it or work around it or not use it. Or you're setting yourself up for a catastrophic mistake when, you know, workload or stress, you know, overcome that human being in a, in a critical environment. And so it's a balance, but it all goes back to understanding, you know, your target market and their environment of use to really understand what that system has to do and how it has to support. And also, what are you inheriting from other processes, good or bad, and other system designs, good or bad, that you can't control, but you need to account for because it also plays into your risk quotient. This is another big miss for companies. They don't realize that they are responsible for the whole workflow and process and and how other systems interact with their own system. Yeah, that's a good point. I want to go into the future a little bit and talk about uh, software as a medical device, which is a new and emerging um, a medical device where you just have a software on your Apple Watch that tells you uh, all of these health uh, health implications and how that can affect the future of regulation. This is another fun one because this is where rapid prototyping is is exponentially even faster <laughs> than what we're a lot you know we can do with with other products and I think it's even at a point where it's overtaxing the FDA and they're looking at a lot of different models in terms of bringing on outside experts to help them review other companies in terms of the human centered design component, because there's so much risk involved with software, you know, not all data is good and not all data is, is used in the right way. And so that it can have bad outcomes. So a a big element of fear and safety, you know, from the FDA perspective is, you know, what is this person going to do with the data? Is the data designed in the right way to elicit the right behavior? Meaning, you know, we don't cause undue panic. We don't push this user to make poor interpretations or assumptions about their health. And then they exercise their their right to be their personal MD without the right guidance. And so there's, there's all sorts of risk factors involved with putting healthcare into people's hands. Now, It's not to say I don't believe in this. I'm a full proponent that knowledge is power, but it takes good design and good understanding of how people um, internalize information and how they act upon it to do it right. Yeah. So I would say it's going to be change the definition of harm instead of you're thinking of physical harm in general with medical medical devices, you're changing it to mental harm, emotional harm uh, and things like that. There. I think it's part of it, but I think there is still a huge physical harm component. And, you know, I think, you know, Jen has some insights too from her world that she can bring to bear on this one. Yeah, it's definitely, you got to connect some dots for folks sometimes to get to the the physical one. And so what Rachel was talking about was, is real, like people are going to receive information. So they used a word that was key knowledge. So data is not knowledge. (laughs) information (laughs) is not necessarily knowledge. There's another part of the process. And we think of it, you know, very intuitively, like your brain takes it in, it compares it to other information it has and results in something that's considered knowledge because now you're going to act on it. 
or choose not to, you know, but, but you, you, it becomes information that's transformed into something greater in value than just the bits and bytes. Um, so I think there's a lot of healthy speculation and should be a lot of evaluation of the software as a medical device, because let's say that the hardware is the same. Let's just, you know, use these, uh, watches, you know, whatever brand you wear, <laughs> these watches are gathering data, lots of data, lots and lots of data, and they deliver some output, which at that point becomes knowledge, right? Like just getting a heart rate number isn't necessarily knowledge. If that number exceeds a value or go below the value, and there's like a, an alarm associated with that, and then you should take an action, that's trying to turn data into knowledge. Now, Cynthia, what you were referring to is where like trying to understand when does providing knowledge, because I totally agree with you, knowledge is power. Now you can take action about your own life and your own well-being and and anticipate if you're vulnerable, potentially a bad outcome and go get help early. Like that is that is the, I think, the the endeavor that everyone's after for the most part. But you could go in a way where people take, now it's treatment. When does it cross from knowledge to take action to now that knowledge is used in a treatment way? And that's the one where you're like, is that information fair game? Is it generalizable enough and actionable in a way that makes sense safely for someone? So right now, let's frame it as one of the watches is approved to do ECG that can deliver a result, and it's only, only allowed to talk about atrial fibrillation, right? Because the other things are harder and more complex to detect. So it can tell you abnormal, right? More like binary. You're normal, it's good, or you're healthy and you're fit if if you mix it with other data, you know, if it has other metadata context. But in general, if you just use the watch to do the ECG, it's just trying to understand atrial fib. But I believe that's a big risk for elderly people. It causes a lot of people to pass out. It can be dangerous, but it's treatable, very treatable. But you need to go get medical help. And some people, they don't perceive it, right? Maybe for whatever reason, they, they have no sense that this is happening to them. So the watch is giving them knowledge to go act on. However, um, someone could take it much further. In third-party apps now are using the same hardware, right? It's taking that same watch you have, you buy a third-party app, it's taking the data. First of all, you're sharing your data. Do you know what's happening to your data? Maybe, maybe not. (laughs) But there's all kinds of privacy issues. Um, But the third-party app is delivering much different output than your watch did and the way it was approved. So now you've got, now it's straight up software as a medical device because it's using somebody else's hardware. And now you got to watch what this thing is delivering and has it crossed a line? Does the evidence base, you know, out there in the medical industry support and medical research area support the interpretation? Is that interpretation aligned with best guidelines from, you know, American Academy of whatever (laughs) specialty? Um, And, and, you know, are you going to skip seeing a physician because you have this watch in this third-party app and wind up dead in the street because you misdiagnosed yourself? So this is where, like, medical software as a medical device needs a really healthy conversation. It needs to be ongoing because these these tools are kind of limitless, right? Data acquisition is hardware-based, sensor-based, but once data is generated, it could be shared infinitely. And that's when things like kind of spiral a little bit. You're like, how, it's a wild west. Like, how do we make sure we're going toward good and away from bad? 
And I think the software realm is, is struggling with that right now. Yeah, definitely. One of my friends actually passed out. And I think if they had this device, they could have figured out, was it my heart just speeding up? And it could have been like a incredibly um, deadly disease, like uh, POTS or not, not really incredibly deadly, but it could be like an autoimmune disease. More dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Like POTS or he could just been dehydrated and his heart went above the meter and real quick and he passed out because meh. (laughs) Yeah. There, there are many case studies on, where things went awry f- for reasons when, when, especially in the case of passing out and trying to uh, unpack why a human body would do that. And, and simple things that could be corrected, like dehydration, electrolyte imbalance, you know, it was about getting dehydrated and, you know, maybe it was hot out, which is not uncommon here in the South. Um, but then there are, you know, neurological disorders, there are cardiac disorders. I mean, it runs a gamut. And, and you're going to need professional help and diagnosis to get that. But just getting an alert from a watch that says you're vulnerable to that happening, you know, hopefully can get you into the care, you know, and this is also like early diagnosis and going back to preventing harm. Like the benefit is this person didn't have to have the bad medical event. We saw the risk factors emerging and that that detection turned into knowledge, which then could be acted upon but it's very contextual and a lot of times requires expert interpretation, which is more at, you know, the medical professional level, not a third party app. Um, yeah. Apps, and I'll, sorry, I'd let you chime in, but you know, this is where that tension between accessibility and specialty, like you want more people to get the medical care, but how you make sure it gets delivered well. Yeah, I think, you know, the desirements are driving us to be a more preventative, pro, you know, proactive, you know, healthcare model, but it comes with an, an, an uncomfortable, you know, give and take, push and pull of control and power. And how much are we willing to allow people to control their own medical care, in a sense, um, versus, you know, hanging on to the old school medical model. And I, I don't think either one is ready for an either or situation. I think it's both, but I think there has to be a shift. And this is probably a discussion for a future podcast because it's, it's wrought with human, human factors elements in terms of how do you shift your expectations and your, your models of behavior to now embrace the ability to have a more collaborative model to healthcare. And, you know, I'm all for this personally, because I don't, I think everybody, if they can take the time to be educated in the right manner and use the data wisely, it's the right choice because there's, there's not enough doctors and not enough, you know, avenues for healthcare for everybody to get seen the way they need to. And again, another conversation for another day, but it, it makes it makes it uncomfortable for all of the regulatory processes and all of the medical care providers and all of the the litigators in the world because well, yeah. how much risk are you putting in the system and how much risk are we willing to accept, right? So, you know, there's cultural aspects to this and the US is a very litigious nation um, compared to other nations. And if you look at them and you know, so this is really a learning process. And and you say, as a culture, how much risk are we willing to take? Um, people sometimes feel uninformed, even though they signed off all of the, you know, the, the sheets and sheets of disclosures. Sometimes it's hard to read. I mean, I, that's my gripe is that, you know, if you're going to be signing something that says you understand the risks, they should be written in clear language 
you know, the legalese has a place in time, but, you know, putting that in where someone's really trying to just understand, like, what could this do to me? And then maybe some percentages. That's where I think things are, it's a little hard to understand and judge. But this is a learning opportunity. But how much risk are we going to go at? And there's many people, it's called biohacking. You know, I wear a lot of tech. I'm very interested in the data. Do I act on all of it? No, I'm, I'm kind of a watch and wait kind of person. And I'm, I'm judging, you know, to your point, like, I, I want it to be collaborative. And I actually drive it myself to be that way. Not not everybody reciprocates. <laughs> because there are there is an old school model. And they're also put in a position of like, well, you got a 15 minute appointment, I can't sit here and talk to you and, and speculate about the future. But I, I agree with you, accessibility, access, you know, education are all important components of it. Um, but the user, it's a little bit buyer beware. And, and you have to understand if you want those things and you want to engage in those things, you also have to act responsibly. And maybe that's where the education is. It has to be partnered with the actual technology and the software so people can can engage that way and push healthcare you know, in a direction where we think it is more collaborative and we can do more prevention. That would be so key. You know, so key. If we knew what to measure, what is the biomarker? If we knew what the biomarkers meant when, um, and then help give people some direction about how to make better choices to prevent the eventuality. Um, yeah, and that's that. That's really key to why I brought up this, you know, menagerie of topics and where you know the potential and opportunity that we have ahead. Because really, human-centered design plays the role in solving all of these problems on 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 different levels. Again, it's not the only answer, but it's a critical element for us to be able to do this safely and effectively. Like, for, forget just the you know the design process and the regulatory process as it is. You know, understanding the goals and human behavior and how to use data appropriately, you know, that, that in and of itself is its, is its own thing, you know, separate from, you know, the regulatory and design process and it's all part of it, but we don't consider it in as a continuum. Yeah. And I think that's a wonderful note uh, to wrap up on. And I want to thank you ladies for joining me on the third episode of season two of the human obstacle podcast. And I would like to also thank the listeners. You can also check out our social media platforms for more human-centered content. Thank you. This is a great topic. Had fun. The Human Odyssey is presented by Sophic Synergistics, the experts in human-centered design. Find out more at sophicsynergistics.com. Get smart. Get Sophic smart. Get Sophic smart.